Hey guys, welcome back to the Fading Podcast. Today we had an amazing episode for you. We had brother Naveed Aziz, who's a graduate from the Islamic University of Medina. He spoke about how the Islamic University has changed from the late 90s and early 2000s to today. How he had a mentor of Yasser Qadi when he was at the Jamia. He spoke about his life of preaching Deen in Canada. He spoke about how we should build the right habits now prior to Ramadan. How we can have emotional intelligence, achieve Ihsan, have all the right goals and intentions right before the month and make the most of it. You guys are going to absolutely love this episode. Make sure you like, comment and subscribe and enjoy. Yeah, we'd, we'd like to know your experiences over the years of Melbourne because not everyone gets to see Australia, Melbourne specifically. Even some of our viewers are not from Australia. And so they just assume like Australia's on the other side. They want to get your opinion. So this is like uncut, unfiltered As version you like. of it, right? <laughs> yeah. Like I'm going to go all out and I'll give <laughs> my own opinion. It. Okay. Bismillah. Right. So should we start right away? Yeah. Bismillah. Bismillah. Okay. Um, so uh, this is probably like my fourth or fifth trip to Melbourne. And I think over a period of like 13 years now, you know, there's a lot of observances uh, or observations rather that can be made. So let's start off with the coffee scene, something light and yes. easy going. The coffee sizes are ridiculously small, <laughs> extremely expensive, but they taste amazing. So I think that's where the, the payoff is. Best mm. in the world? I, I would say, yeah. Like I don't think I've seen a better coffee scene anywhere in the world than I have in, in, in Melbourne. But again, I'm going to re-emphasize this point. Like in Canada, you can order multiple sizes of a latte. Over here, a latte is like a set size. This, mm. And if you ask for something larger, they get offended. <laughs> like they give you this weird look like, how dare you? Yeah, it is w- a bit strange. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So what's a normal size considered in Canada? Uh, so uh, again, I'm not sure what ounces it would be, but I would say like a medium is like <sighs> this size, right? Whereas the small is like probably still bigger than the size that you get over here. Let alone if you get like a, a venti at Starbucks, because I know Starbucks mm. is like blasphemy here as well. But like <laughs> yeah, a venti at blasphemy would be it would be like that oh big, my right? Goodness. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the, that's the coffee scene. So great coffee scene, expensive, small sizes. <laughs> Let's talk about the Islamic centers here, though. Okay. I think the Islamic centers here are so unique. So I went to uh, my center. They have this amazing prayer space. They're building a pool inside their center. They want to have a full fledged gym. They have a full-fledged restaurant. And that's become like a reoccurring theme. So I went to UMA in Sydney. They have their own center over there. I went to uh, HIYC. They have like their own scene over there. So all of this physical infrastructure is there. But then you ask them, what are their plans for their human capital and their human infrastructure? And they're like, yeah, we have this imam. And I'm like, okay, what else do you have? Mm. And then the conversation dies over there. There's no youth coordinator. There's no resident scholar. There's no female resident scholar. Mm. You know, none of that exists over here. And I think that's very perplexing because when you look at sustainability of community, it's great to have physical infrastructure, but if you don't have human resources and human capital, you're you're doomed for destruction, man. Mm. So I'm hoping that... uh, you know, just like they've invested in the, in the physical infrastructure, they'll invest in the human capital and the human uh, resources as well. Bithnillahi ta'ala. Yeah, seems uh, like we're, we're striving on passion, alhamdulillah. Yeah, <laughs> That's yeah, That's a good yeah. thing though. No, but that is a, actually a good observation because I know like for us, when we want, like there's a lot of um, lectures at the mosques, but they a lot of times, uh, diff- they jump from topic to topic each week. And it's like dipping your feet in a lot of different topics in Islamic knowledge, which is beautiful. Yeah. But sometimes you're like, hey, I want to actually learn about, um, I'll, g- I'll give reference to this. I started your Imam Nawawi's 40 Hadith mm. classes. So I'm like, I started with one of my friends. We take notes together and stuff like that. But here in Australia, I haven't seen a mosque do that. 
maybe they do, but maybe they don't publicize as much as yeah. you know where we can see it. But uh, frequently we don't find the in-depth knowledge. You know, like, hey, we're going to touch on a topic for a year. We're going to go sira for the next year once a week. We're going to do stories of the prophets. A lot of times it's each week a different topic. Yeah, yeah. And that's something at least I see here. Mm. That's why, like, online, you know, people, uh, ustaz uh, or sheikhs in America, in North America, they kind of uh, offer that more frequently. 100%. And I think that's a great observation as well that, mashallah, there's amazing podcasts here in Australia that we don't have in North America. But when you look at structured learning, you know, for some reason it, it hasn't come. So I guess that's sort of like the balance. Mm. Yeah. What would you say um, the solution is to it? Because, for example, we know the Muslim youth, like there's quite a lot of people that are in their 20s going overseas and studying ilm, yeah. which is beautiful. Mm-hmm. But we, in like in the 30s and 40s age group, there's only a couple of different sheikhs we have here in Melbourne that we know. Like it's not like an established thing where across the board we have all these hufad and, you know, um, sheikhs and ulama. We're kind of still, and yeah, you can count them on your finger. Yeah, yeah. So, what do you, what's the solution like? Can we build so something like North let's America? let's get political for a second. Like when you look at democracies, the governments are supposed to fear the people, and the people aren't supposed to fear their governments. And the reason why I highlight that point is because I feel the boards of masajid and imams are unilaterally making decisions in terms of what the community needs, what the community wants, and what the community is going to get. But at the end of the day, these organizations are still fundraising. So if you're donating to the masjid, that should automatically give you the right to at least have some sort of input or say, you know, these are the types of classes, the programs, you know, the features we want to see at, at, at this masjid. And up until those boards and those masajid and those imams cater to the needs of the people, there needs to be some sort of like public boycott, right? Like some mm-hmm. sort of accountability. Like, why am I donating to this masjid if you're not going to care about my needs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that's something to explore Like an, a more structured approach To fundraising and donating That if they're not catering to the needs Maybe we shouldn't donate to these organizations Because why do we need more dictatorships right? Like we have enough of those in the Middle East um, So I think that's one approach to it Number two is Building your own infrastructure right? And I don't recommend this Because Alhamdulillah you guys have great infrastructure here So if there's a way that you guys can get your foots Through the door and be a part of these organizations And have some sort of say that's the ideal case scenario. But in the cases that you can't, you know, what's stopping you guys from building your own infrastructure and dictating your own classes and lessons and hiring your own imams and own shayukh and sending your own you know, uh, brothers and sisters overseas to study and come back and to teach at your institutions, right? Yeah. So I, I think those are like the three approaches that I would take. That number one, you know, uh, organize your fundraising strategies. Number two, try to get your foot through the door. And number three, if all else fails, start your own organizations and mm. institutes. I, I do. I can see that. Because um, even us now, we start, we start to have conversations with a lot of massages and we start to see how a lot of them think. Um, in Sydney, did you go around to different mosques or did you just go to UMA? No, I was just at UMA. Okay. Because um, no. you saw, Pest- have you been to Preston Mosque yet? No, that's tonight. Okay, inshallah. so you'll go yeah. tonight, inshallah, and you'll see they just finished renovations and it opened in last Ramadan. Mm-hmm. So it hasn't even been open for a year yet. And they fit, it's the biggest mosque in Melbourne now. They said 2,500 people fit Mashallah. upstairs and downstairs. Yeah. So really good. Uh, they have a small restaurant, but alhamdulillah, they're doing a lot of good work. And it cost about $5 million for the renovation. Allahu Akbar. And then we went to Sydney recently and we saw a mosque. It's called, it's Punchbowl Mosque in Sydney. It's just a suburb there. And I'm... I think I went to that mosque. It looks like a spaceship. 
It's, yeah, yeah, and it's yeah, got yeah, different yeah. names of Allah on it. Yeah, they spent like a ridiculous amount of money. That's on the it. point. They spent yeah. 13 million. Yeah, yeah. And it fits yeah. 250 people. Yeah, and no one's ever there. Like, you show up for Salah, and there's like 10 people there. And that's the yeah. when I, because I went there, and I'm like, they spent double as much as Pastor Mosque here. Yeah. Obviously, the mosque looks beautiful, but it's 13 million. Like, imagine the amount of students, like you said, you could send overseas. Of course. Or institutes you could build here. Yeah. I'm talking yeah, about like yeah. double. You know, a lot of other masjids they do. SubhanAllah. And that's where sometimes we see, because I know in the 90s, my dad talks about how in Melbourne and in Sydney, they used to send a lot of students overseas. They used to have a strong connection with Medina University. Mm-hmm. And they used to send, but they said in the uh, late 2000s, uh, the connection kind of wasn't as strong. Yeah. It got weak. And now it's a kind of common thing where I think now only in the last five years, people have been going overseas for studying. Mm-hmm. It's not like a normal thing. Yeah, like it's, it's starting to. It's not easy, obviously, from Australia because it's even more expensive and it's further. Yeah. But it is, alhamdulillah, starting to become normal, which is beautiful yeah. to see. But it's great um, because, of course, you studied overseas yourself. I did, yeah. Away from Canada. You studied in Saudi, if that's all right? Correct, at the Islamic University. So where did it all start? And, yeah, I want to know how it began, how <laughs> even the motivation um, to want to study overseas. So I, I think I was probably around like 12 or 13 years old. My parents gave me an alterna- uh, ultimatum: either you work, you go, you do summer school. Um, or those are your two options. And I'm like, how about we do we create a third option? And that third option was my cousins were going to some sort of wedding in Pakistan, and I'm like, yeah, I'm just gonna go attend, crash this wedding, right? And on the way to this wedding, we stopped over in Dubai, um, and I attended my first Juma that I ever heard in English. It was at the Filipino embassy. Uh, and there was a sheikh there, uh, Sheikh Abu Mina Bilal Phillips. He was giving the khutbah there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So oh. that's where I met him for the first time. He told me about this program that he he runs in the summer times for new Muslims. And he's like, hey, you should come attend. So the following summer, I went back, spent... You're 12. A, I was, yeah, 12, 20, 13. So I was, might have been 13 at this time. Uh, so the next summer when I went back, I was 13, 20, 14, or I, I might have turned 14 at that time. Spent the summer there le- learning and studying. And eventually we started inviting him to Canada and he became like a major influence uh, in, in my childhood. So as I started growing up, I was reading his books, communicating with him through emails. Uh, eventually, I met other, um, you know, students of knowledge that graduated from Medina. And, you know, my application process is probably the funniest part of the story, where when I went to go apply, you know, I thought I was signing up to go on Khuruj with the Jamaat at <laughs> That's literally, you know, the perception that I had. And then eventually I get called into this room. I do an interview and they're like, yeah, you just finished your interview for the Islamic University of Medina. And I'm like, really? And he's like, yeah, get me four pictures. And, you know, I was really shocked and perplexed. I was a bit angry as to like, you know, I would have prepared better had you told me this <laughs> is an interview, right? Like, and a lot of things were going through my mind. Uh, so I applied and that brother that actually wanted to get in he didn't end up getting in, subhanAllah. And for me, like, I had no hopes or aspirations of going at that point. But alhamdulillah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had uh, decided for me to get in. Um, and then slowly but surely, that's how the, the journey began. So I left for Medina when I was 19. Um, you know, I did my diploma in Arabic for three years. I did my bachelor's in Sharia for four. And then that's, you know, as they say, that's the... When the did you start and graduate, was it? I started when I was 19, and when I left, I was about 26. Do you know what years it was like? Yeah, it was uh, 2000 to 2007, and then a part of 2008, I just stuck around and I was teaching English. Oh. So you were there through yeah. 9/11 as well. I okay. was like li- I was there the year before 9/11, mm. and then I saw life after 9/11 as well. 
Like it was crazy. Prior to 9-11, you travel in a thobe through GFK Airport, uh, which is the, the main airport in New York City, and no one bats an eyelash at you. 9-11 happens, and I have like a Nike t-shirt on and like a baseball cap on, and I have like these Adidas track pants, <laughs> and I'm like, yalla, let me fit in somehow, <laughs> some way. <laughs> and then, you know, you get interrogated, like as if you're a suspect, and, you know, you didn't even do anything wrong, subhanAllah. So, yeah, I got to experience both sides of that. Who would you say was the biggest influence um, in you, like, making that decision to seek knowledge? I, I don't think there was any one person, but I think someone that um, I owe a lot of gratitude to after Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is my mom's sister's husband. Um, you know, he did a great job of taking me to the masjid uh, two or three times a day as a young kid. So he'd pick me up for Fajr, take me for Maghrib and Isha as well. And, you know, through there, I developed the love of the masjid and, you know, having a, a somewhat religious upbringing uh, as much as it was possible. But in terms of any one person directing me towards the path of knowledge, indirectly, Bilal Phillips. And then once I got to Medina University, like one of the first people that I met was Sheikh Yasser Qadi. So I think for five years, you know, having him mentor me and help me was... Uh, a huge benefit and a huge privilege, alhamdulillah. Did he, uh, was there like a age gap as in he got there a couple of years before you? Yeah, so he, he was he was starting his master's and I was just starting my Arabic institute, right? Oh. So there's a massive gap, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you were just uh, at the door of Ilm and exactly. his master's. Yeah, exactly, <coughs> exactly. Yeah. How was that? Because obviously like uh, Ustaz like Yasser Qadi, we all listen to his lectures, he's all over the other side of the world. A lot of sheikhs don't come to Australia. That's why whenever they come, or honored to see them and meet them. How was it, you know, even at that process, you finding other students from North America and they have this knowledge and they're like, we love it here, we're doing our masters, we're enjoying it. Did that kind of motivate you and inspire you to do um, your own study? Like more just... You know, it's a, it's a very fascinating situation because statistically back then, less than 1% of Westerners graduated. So for every 100 Westerner students that are going... Less than one is graduating. Oh. Yeah, there's like cultural differences. There's obviously the rigor of the academic study. There's the whole society. But I think the biggest thing was the family situation because they made it next to impossible at that time, at least, for you to bring your wife and kids. So if you already have mm -hmm. a wife and kids, mm -hmm. you have to be committed to spend seven years, six years away from them, right? Yeah, that's almost And impossible. that's really challenging. That's really, really challenging. Mm -hmm. So I think that was like one of the biggest hindrances. So you see like all of these people you know, falling off and you're wondering like, why is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala choosing you to get through, right? Mm. Like it's one of those weird circumstances. But I think again, you know, reading these books about the struggles that the scholars of the past made or had with regards to seeking knowledge and seeing brothers that are going through this journey, you know, it, it definitely helps for sure, 100%. Uh, on that note about scholars of the past, was there a scholar that you... Uh, maybe enjoy studying the most Someone that resonates with you Someone you aspire to be like Like it's in the back of your head I want to be like uh, person X I, I think I have a good story about this So in, the, in our first year of Sharia We started studying Sahil Bukhari And our teacher for Sahil Bukhari Without exaggeration You know May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgive him And have mercy upon him He was one of the worst teachers I ever came across <laughs> <laughs> Like I'm like you have this book All you need to do is just read it casually mm -hmm. And you will fall in love with this book Yet somehow, some way, he butchered the class. Oh, yeah. So that was like one of my motivations that I want to go and study this outside, find a teacher to teach me this, and really dedicate, you know, that year into trying to understand Sahil Bukhari. So I think through that process, I naturally fell in love with Imam al-Bukhari, rahimahullah. And, uh, you know, till this day, I'm still amazed at 
some of the gems that you find inside Sahih al-Bukhari. Like if you look at the very first hadith, innamal there's like this, are you, are you guys familiar with the Da Vinci Code? That, that famous movie that came out. I'm saying that you know, movie. I, I, I know the books better. You than know the, the books, okay. And you're sure you know the books, right? Like I, I just assume that you know uh, you'd be more familiar with the movies. But if you know the book, like the same concept over here on how you have something in front of you, but there's this code that only scholars will understand in it. So like if you look at again, I, I don't want to get uh, technical and academic over here. But if you look at this very first hadith of Inna Malamalu Biniyat, it's in the Book of Revelation. So you're trying to figure out what is the relationship between this hadith and the book of Revelation. But then the answer to that question is in all of the narrators that are in this hadith, that all of them are from Mecca or Medina or sometimes both of them. So they're all from the lands of Revelation. And that's one of the ways that this hadith fits into that chapter. Number two, inside Sahih al-Bukhari, Imam al-Bukhari narrates, you know, to give preference to the Quraysh. So he could have chosen any hadith, but he found a hadith where his direct, uh, the person that he's narrating from is... Uh, Al-Humaydi, who is Abdullah ibn Zubair al-Qurashi. So he found a hadith, the very first hadith to give preference to the Quraysh, and that's what he's starting with. And I'm like, unless you've studied this with a teacher, and unless you, you're like focusing on this, you're missing out on all the subtleties and all these gems that are there. Right? So, yeah, I think Sahil uh, Bukhari and Imam al-Bukhari, rahimahullah, like you could dedicate your life to that, and uh, it still wouldn't be enough. SubhanAllah. Yeah, amazing. Just on that topic, sorry. Um, <coughs> so, um, when you made the decision to um, study at Islamic University in Medina, like, what was your expectation? Um, at what level of deen were you at? Um, and how did you feel, like, entering that university, a different environment, different from Canada, obviously, um, just so that like the um, listeners can benefit from it. So we're we're gonna go back to those three questions. I'm not gonna remember all of them. <laughs> no, it's all good. But let's start off with level of deen because that's yeah. like another fascinating story. <laughs> you know, I think growing up. Like, alhamdulillah, I had a very sheltered childhood. Like, there wasn't an opportunity really to do haram, right? <laughs> so then as you grow older and all your friends are off to uni and you're hearing all these stories, you're like, man, did I miss out? Because you have this FOMO of like, you know, yeah. I missed out on my yeah. youth, I missed out on this childhood. But then as you get older, you're thankful that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saved you from those fits and because you don't know what would have happened to you. Like, you could have slipped and that could have been a completely different story, Right. So I think at that age, I was still trying to navigate, you know, is this the better path? Like, I know it's the better path, but I'm not certain about it. 20 years down the line, I know 100% this was the better path for me, alhamdulillah. But all that to say, I think we're constantly trying to figure out our identities and who we are and what we want to be and, and all that, right? So that was the, the level of my deen at that time. And alhamdulillah, being in Medina, you know, it, uh, it really, really helped, alhamdulillah. Now... Uh, what was it like being in the Islamic University of Medina? What were my expectations? So before going to Medina, you know, there was sort of like this thing in my head that if I don't get into Medina now at this point, this is like after I've applied, but I don't know if I'm getting in because they don't tell you on the spot and you don't even know for sure because they may accept you four or five years down the line. I was like, I'm going to go and study in Yemen. And I'd already heard about what Yemen was like. You live in a mud hut, no electricity. <laughs> like, you know, you get ready to die from malaria, right? <laughs> and I was like, if I'm ready to handle that, inshallah, Medina is going to be a much easier experience. Yep. And as difficult as Medina was, because I was ready to go and study in Yemen at that time, you know, I was like, alhamdulillah, you know, Medina wasn't too bad. So expectations were very reasonable. And life was difficult. But I think... Again, if you have that camaraderie, if you have you know constantly look at the struggles of the scholars of the past, it, it really helps you get through those struggles. Um, and then, what was the experience in Medina like? 
you know, I think without a shadow of a doubt, the, the peak years of your life are your university years, right? Mm. They really formulate who you're going to be and what you're going to become. And even the relationships you build in uni, I think, are very strong relationships. But when I look at it, I was like, this is unreal. Like, Yasser Qadi was there. You, you guys may be familiar with Kamal Abu Maryam. He was there. Saad Taslim was there. Um, you know, all these people that people now look up to as role models yeah. I went to school with. So I recognize that, alhamdulillah, it was a very privileged uh, position to be in uh, that I can't thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enough for. Yeah. I wanted to touch on that because I've seen with the um, sheikhs, the, the sheikhs you just mentioned, there's sometimes maybe a different approach to deen as a lot of other new graduates. Obviously, you're not at the university right now, so you can't have a um, complete understanding of it. But is there a thing you see now with sometimes like different um, graduates from the early 2000s to graduates now in the 20s? Is there a different approach to how they try to give da'wah? Does that just come with age? Is the you know, personalities? I, I think what's becoming really fascinating now is that when my generation and the generations older to, older, older to me were graduating, they're like, we have such few job opportunities, we have to become imams of masjid. So you psychologically prepared yourself where if you didn't become an imam of a masjid, you'd have to go and get a secular degree and you know work in that field. And I remember even having this conversation with Yasser Qadi at that time, he was uh, working towards getting a Microsoft certification so that he can go and work for Microsoft, like this two-year degree. And I'm like, man, that's crazy, subhanAllah. And now, when you look at it, I think people have become so jaded by working with Muslim organizations and institutions. They're like, we don't want to be an imam of a masjid. We don't want to work with you know, the Muslim community on someone else's terms. I want to work for the Muslim community on my terms. So for some people, that's going to be having a 9-to-5 job, giving da'wah at night, starting up their own institutes and their own you know, initiatives. Um, and then you also see those that, mashallah, from the time that they're already there, they're already building up, you know, social media clout. And then they're giving da'wah online through social media. And that's the, the, the career trajectory that they take even after graduation. So I think there are some major differences that, that exist between now and then. Like in, in hindsight, when I used to want to use the internet in Medina, when I got there, we'd have to go to an internet cafe that's about 20 minutes walking away. And then you share a dial-up connection with 12 other people. So you were fortunate if you could just check your emails at that time within one hour. But now the buildings themselves in the universities have internet. Yeah. So you can use the internet there. Everyone has internet on their phone. You can constantly be connected, right? So like those sort of things uh, have changed the dynamics of dawah, the dynamics of seeking knowledge. And comfort isn't always a good thing. I think we need to recognize that. The more luxury and comfort you get, the more complacent and apathetic you become. That's just the reality of life. So I think this sounds very judgmental, but even the quality of students that are graduating from these institutes has gone down generation by generation. My two cents. Why would you say that just because they might be spending time not on the studies, like they might spend 70% of the time on the studies and 30% on building social media and kind of other things away from ilm? Yeah, so the, the, they have access to many more distractions than we did during our time. Yeah. Because we didn't have access to internet and social media didn't really exist at that time, there's nothing to distract you. Like, you want to socialize, okay, let's go read a book together. Like, if you want to play ping pong, there's a one-hour lineup for playing ping pong. Mm. But now they have, like, Olympic-sized swimming pools, world-class facility gyms, basketball tournaments. 
that are intercollegiate, like Riyadh is playing Medina, Medina is playing Qasim, like all sorts of you know programming. This is not to say that these are all bad things, but the more distractions you have, the less you get to focus on your studies. And we're seeing that in the in the quality of students that's coming out. I was just in Medina in January and I met up with one of my close friends who's studying there and he said the same thing talking about how a lot of his sheikhs encourage him not to have social media, not to post now. They said as soon as you graduate in three years, you can spend as much time as you want on it. But right now you're in Medina for a short time, so don't put your priority on building that social media brand. Because even us, we know with the podcast, yeah. sometimes doing that one minute clip like of what happened on the episode could take like 45 minutes to an hour. Easily. So imagine 100%. each day you're doing yeah. that and sometimes longer because you're analyzing something else, thinking about what you're going to post. In your yeah. free time when you're going for a walk, like you walk to the mosque, it's probably not the best thing to be thinking, hey, what post is going to go viral? What hadith can I try to show? Rather focus on your studies, practice your hifs or something like exactly, that. Exactly, 100%. 100%. Mm. And talking about what you were saying, because um, back then I'm assuming you guys were using Nokia's, the flip flop ones. <laughs> Bro, this is even before that. <laughs> like, we had the brick. <laughs> that's what we had. Like, if we, someone misbehaved, you threw it at them. <laughs> and then, you know, that's what you use, subhanAllah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now it's all iPhones and. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Is yeah. there any restrictions um, at the university nowadays? Uh, not that I'm aware of. Okay. Yeah, not that I'm aware of. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. You get to go often? You get to go on Umrah, take Umrah groups and stuff like that? Yeah. So in, in 2016, um, I sort of made like a conscious decision that I want to go once a year. So I started off with going for Hajj, uh, got consistent in that. And then the plan was, Alhamdulillah, by the Father of Allah, in 2019 to start taking Umrah groups. So 2019, we did it. And then by 2020, pandemic happened. Mm. So we just started up again uh, this past year in 2022. The plan is to try to do Hajj and Umrah once a year, inshallah. Beautiful. Yeah. Inshallah. Okay. It's very good. Yeah, do you have like an Umrah group yourself or do you just tag along with maybe an organizer, uh, organization? Yeah. So we have like someone that does the logistics for you. Like they book all the flights and book all the buses and stuff like that. But then all the religious guidance, I, I take care of Beautiful. that. Okay. Yeah. Maybe we'll tag the group. So then, you know, if anyone from Australia wants to tag along. Yeah. Dar es Salaam. Yeah, the company's name is Dar es Salaam. I'm pretty sure they function out of here. As well, because I know Sheikh Yahya goes with them as yeah, well. I saw yeah. the Canadian picture, all the Canadian <laughs> yeah, shacks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah, Inshallah, we're going to Perth yeah. next week, so we're going to try to Amazing. meet up with him, Inshallah. Amazing. Beautiful. Sheikh, I want to talk more about the what you said was fascinating, actually, the distractions in what students have, and all of us, obviously, these days. It's something we have to live with, because it's just part of the life now. And it can be to our convenience or inconvenience. And you still see good students coming out of universities, coming out of just even doing studying online. So I think it does come back to yourself and, you know, how you perceive, like, Ihsan, excellence. So I wanted you to delve into Ihsan and the importance of it in our religion. <laughs> yeah, it's a big I have no idea how to speak about that, bro, because <laughs> that's not something, like, you know, we should speak about those things that we practice ourselves, right? Okay. And I think Ihsan... This con there's a reason why in the hadith of Jibreel it's mentioned last because <laughs> very few people are going to achieve it yeah. like you have to have completed your Islam you're striving for Iman and if you're fortunate you know at some point in your life for a few seconds you'll reach Yassan mm -hmm. to worship Allah as if you can see him and if even though you can't see him knowing that he sees you but all that to say I think let's try to refocus on some of the wordings and that is trying to be professional in everything that you do yeah. And striving for the highest standard possible. And, you know, this goes back to uh, a saying of Sheikh Muhammad al-Sharif, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala always deserves better. 
So no matter what we do, no matter what we put forward, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala always deserves better. So I think striving with that mentality that whatever we do, yes, bi'idhnillahi ta'ala, if we're sincere and we're following the, the example of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Allah will accept it, inshallah. But in terms of the effort that we put and the level of sincerity behind it, we can always do more and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala always deserves better. So I think in everything that we try to do in our lives, you know, do it with the highest level of professionalism, with the highest level of excellence, always striving to be better and not being content with where we are and trying to improve on that. Mm. Yeah. I think there's, if there's going to be a time for us to at least feel like we're at a Iman peak, it's going to be Ramadan. For sure. And as you know, obviously, you're about to give a lecture on preparing for Ramadan. It's a month away for the audience who want to um, have these feelings. Because as we know, we shouldn't uh, worship or seek the feeling. We shouldn't f- seek the Iman high when we're praying and stuff like that. We should just have the intention to be doing it for the sake of Allah, for His pleasure. Mm-hmm. So is there a way maybe we can have that um, pre-Ramadan building up and trying to make a, a month of Ihsan, a month of you know success? A hundred percent. And I, I think let's expand on this concept of, of feelings. Feelings are great, but they don't accurately measure the level of your iman. Right? So for example, something catastrophic happens in your life, you're crying, but that crying does not mean your iman went up. That just means your heart is longing to connect with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala even more, right? So it's great to feel, but it's more important to do. So as long as you have a method of looking at the actions that you're doing, that is your true measure of success, not the way that you feel, right? And this is where this whole concept of iman is in my heart. Yes, iman starts in your heart, but it doesn't stop there, right? It has to transcend into action, and that's where true faith actually is. So all that to say, having a game plan getting into the month of Ramadan, like a lot of times people won't fast except in the month of Ramadan. So what that means is when you haven't fasted the whole entire year and you get to the beginning of Ramadan, your first two or three days, your mind is very cloudy. It's very foggy. So how about you try to fast a couple of days before Ramadan to get that fog out of your uh, uh, your head and you can have that clarity as soon as you start Ramadan. Number two, this might be like a my generation thing, but a lot of us are addicted to caffeine. Like we need our caffeine fix in the morning. Ramadan time starts, you're not having your coffee, your caffeine you're cranky for the first few days because you're like, man, why don't I have energy? And that's because your, your your body is dependent on that caffeine. So try giving up caffeine a couple of weeks before Ramadan so that that becomes easier for you as well. Number three is trying to improve the quality of your sleep. So as you know, in the month of Ramadan, the amount of sleep you get drastically decreases, which means you have to increase the quality of your sleep. So one of the things that you know we learn scientifically that works well Stop eating three hours before you go to bed. Stop drinking two hours before you go to bed. And put away anything that has a blue light an hour before bed. And as you develop these healthy sleeping uh, mechanisms, the quality of your sleep uh, will also go up. Now let's actually get into the ibadah aspect of it. Our relationship with the Quran, our relationship with the masjid, our relationship with the hajjud and qiyam al-layl. You know, I always give this example. And this is while recognizing my own shortcomings while trying to, to read and recite Quran how would we feel when our friends only reach out to us once a year? And they're like, hey, I need a favor from you. Can you help me out? Like we would feel very used and abused, right? But isn't that exactly what we do with the Quran? We're like, I want the ajr from you. I want the barakah from you. I want the guidance from you. But I'm only going to reach out to you in the month of Ramadan. Like if we wouldn't want to be treated like that, how can we treat the words of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala like that, right? 
So I think we need to find a way to have a regular reading of the Quran on a daily basis and tying it to something that you're doing already. So before going to bed or as soon as you wake up or tying it even to the salawat, if you're capable of doing so, so that you have a regular reading of the Quran. So it's not like starting from fresh, you know, as you're getting into the month. Number two with the Hajjud and Qiyamul Layl, you know, this was like one of the, the things that we were speaking about in the, in the Jummah Khutbah this past week. Every night, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, our Lord, our creating sustainer, descends to the lowest heavens in the manner that is befitting His majesty. And He asks all of His creation, is there anyone seeking forgiveness that I can forgive? Is there anyone asking of anything that I can grant them? This is not us asking Allah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is asking us, right? And that is the virtue of the last third of the night. Yet, we're either wasting time by doing something silly or we're sleeping during that time, right? And we miss out on these amazing opportunities every single night. And alhamdulillah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala removes that spiritual veil in the month of Ramadan and we're able to reconnect with our tahajjud and qiyam al-layl. But again, like if we ever wanted a time to fix our lives, that last third of the night is where it should begin. So trying to get into the habit of praying tahajjud and qiyam al-layl, even on a monthly basis. Like literally just once a month, Try to build on that. Try to get it to a weekly basis. Try to get it to several times a week. And do whatever you're capable of uh, as well, right? Hang on a sec. You guys are not subscribed. I think you guys, before you start the video, make sure you subscribe. Turn off the notification bell. Enjoy the rest of the video. And then I think let's focus on something more general. We have goals for our finances. We have goals for our careers. We have goals for our families. We have goals for our sports and athletics. But where are our goals for ibadah? Where, you know, why is it that we don't strive for ihsan when it comes to that, right? And I think even having goals for our ibadah are very, very important. And the month of Ramadan is a perfect training ground for that in terms of the amount of Qur'an you want to read, the amount of sadaqah you want to give, the amount of tahajjud and qiyam al-layl you want to pray, the sunnahs you want to pray. Build on those goals, but with the focus of how do I keep consistent even after the month of Ramadan? So this holistic approach, uh, I think, will work very well. And then the last thing I'd mention is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made us social beings. And Ramadan is a social month for us. But one of the ways we can use that socialization for our benefit is having someone to keep tabs on you and someone to compete with. So just like, hey, we call each other up and you know see how we're doing. How are you doing with your ibadah today? Did you read your Quran, pray your sunnahs? Whatever you're trying to achieve, help each other achieve those goals. But then also like, hey, let's compete, right? Naturally, that's just something that we do. Let's see who can do their khatam of the Qur'an first this year, right? Something along those lines. So this holistic approach to making the most out of Ramadan, uh, I, I think will go a long way, inshallah. Um, on the competing aspect, because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> us three brothers we've done, um, there's like so these mental health challenges, there's mental toughness challenges, stuff like that online. So we've done it, we've competed before. Um, but with the ibadah, it's one of the things we always are a bit confused about. You know, like we tell each other, oh, I want to read five pages a day. But we're telling people the ibadah we're doing. And sometimes we're like, oh, you know, is that a okay? Is that a not okay? So now coming into the month of Ramadan, if we make a competition like who can finish khatam first, there's nothing wrong with that? Like, No, because you're not doing it with the intention to show off. You're doing it with the intention to encourage, right? So that's what your intention has to be, that I'm sharing my ibadah, not for the sake of showing off, but for the sake of encouraging others to do more. And that's mm. what you should be striving for, inshallah. Okay. Right. And at the end of the day, it's between you and Allah. 
100 percent. but i think think of the analogy of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam saying that you know whoever gives sadaqa first gets the reward of everyone that gives sadaqa after them right so does that mean everyone gives sadaqa secretly no the point was be the first so that people can follow your example right same thing over here lead by example and encourage people to be better than you right mm. yeah yeah i think that's very important because um i do see and i'm a um i've felt for this as well we all attend the masjid like we pray fajr for the first 10 days and all of a sudden we all drop off yeah um we see the tarawih lines it's full the first 10 15 days and then all of a sudden it's you know so i think it's important to take that holistic approach leading into ramadan 100 percent. and, and you know recognizing that point that there is going to be a, a mid ramadan dip yeah how are we preparing for that right so that social component will go a very long way inshallah that's true yeah that's true it's holding each other accountable if I get a message four days in a row, one chat tattoo, one chat tattoo, then it's like, you know, eventually I'm like, okay, I'm going to come, you know, because yeah. I don't want to. But is that bad where, for example, Barista sends me a message four days in a row, and then I'm like, oh man, I should go, so he doesn't send another message. Yeah. I understand what you're trying to say. Like, are you really worshipping Allah at this yeah. point, or are you just trying to, like, save face, right? But... At the end of the day, we have to make a conscious decision. Maybe it's a social pressure that'll get us to the masjid. But when I'm praying, I'm praying for the sake of Allah, right? You have to be able to make that distinction in your mind and consciously just like regularly checking your intention, right? Mm -hmm. So if social pressure gets you to the masjid, before you actually say Allahu Akbar, focus on the statement Allahu Akbar, that I'm only here to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? So yeah. Do you have other things in Ramadan you might recommend? I think our audience is about our age. Like a lot of people aren't married, under thirty, and stuff like that. You know, is there other types of things you think that, like maybe it's a tarawih goal? You know, because some mosques do twenty and then they're there for two hours. That's maybe sometimes difficult for some people. Look, um, man, our Deen is easy, and our Lord is the most generous, right? So the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam tells us that whoever prays with the Imam from the beginning to the end gets the reward of praying the whole entire night. So for those people that have like a busy work schedule, find a masjid that prays a short tarawih, but pray with them from beginning to end. Don't focus on the numbers. Focus on being with your imam from beginning to end. And there's nothing wrong with choosing a masjid that has a lighter tarawih schedule that accommodates to the needs of the people. For those that are free, not in school, not married, and have plenty of time, yes, you should be trying to pray three hours a night. But also understand that that's not practical for everyone, right? Mm. So I, I think... Um, you know, taking care of your physical, emotional, psychological health as well in the month of Ramadan is very important. Because to the brother's point, we don't want to strive hard for 15 days and then burn out. Mm. You want to be in it for the whole entire month, inshallah. Mm. Yeah. Can I touch on emotional intelligence? Or did you have a question? Go for it. Yeah. Bismillah. Um, I've seen here now in Melbourne, you've had a couple topics, and I've seen the emotional intelligence pop up. And I've read, I'm not too sure if you know uh, the Ustaz, Ustaz Makala Ahmed Smith yes. from Khalam Institute. I read his book with the heart in mind and I read Daniel Goldman's book on emotional intelligence. And after that, I'm starting to listen to lectures on emotional intelligence and Prophet's life. And I was speaking with um, Sheikh Bilal Asad here. It's one of those things where I was talking to him about uh, lecture topics. Because mm. uh, as you know, like the Hadith of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam says the Alayhi characteristics Alayhi of the people of Jannah. Uh, there's two characteristics mm. So good character It's not You know you memorize the entire Quran Or you know Bukhari of It's good character And I think emotional intelligence And good character Tying together It's one of those things Where you're looking inward And outward at the same time But you're understanding The bigger picture 
Mm. I feel like lectures on the topic of good character aren't as um, popular. Like when you do Day of Judgment lectures, you do marriage lectures, they're the ones that get all the views. Mm. <laughs> when you're doing emotional intelligence, when you're doing um, character, how, you know, adab, akhlaq, and stuff like that, it isn't a thing that's eye-catching. Because mm. some of the people are like, oh, I have good character. And you push it aside. Mm. You know, but I want to know the signs of the Day of Judgment. But it's like, these are the characteristics of the people of Jannah. This is the thing that if you tweak, will have the biggest impact, you know. So with the topic of emotional intelligence, what's the perspective that you push onto people first? Because it's probably a topic that most people haven't heard. Everyone knows intelligence, you know, IQ, but EQ isn't uh, commonly spoken about in the masajids. Right. So can I give a shameless plug? Go. So <laughs> one of the things that I'm doing now is I take books and I explain those books. Sort of like an audio book, right? But with my flair, with my explanation to it. So the, one of the first books that I did was actually Sheikh Mikhail Smith's book. Where can so people find this if they want so to watch? So if you type in the Z's Emotional Intelligence, it's a four-part series on YouTube. And interestingly enough, it's been at par, if not better, than some of my other series like I did on Imam Nawaz 40 Hadith or the Tafsir uh, Juzamba and stuff like that. So I think people that are interested in the more detailed and in-depth discussion on that can, can go to that. And the way Sheikh Mikhail Smith framed his book... Like he talks about what is intelligence first, then he talks about the usage of emotional intelligence in the life of the Prophet ﷺ, the need for uh, moral intelligence, and then how do you bring about radical change? Like within 23 years, he changed the world. With all of these three things, how did that happen, right? So the structure is, is great uh, for that. But one of the things I've taken from this book, and I'm trying to you know, create like a movement around it, is how did the Prophet ﷺ wins people's allegiance? Like, how were people truthfully saying, may my life be sacrificed for you? May my parents be sacrificed for you? Like, how do you reach that level of commitment in a relationship? And it comes down to four simple things that are mentioned at the end of Surah At-Tawbah. لَقَدْ جَاءَكُمْ رَسُولٌ مِنْ أَنفُسِكُمْ عَزِيزٌ عَلَيْهِ مَعَنِتُمْ حَرِيسٌ عَلَيْكُمْ بِالْمُؤْمِنِينَ رَأُوفٌ رَحِيمٌ That there has come to you a prophet and messenger from amongst your own selves. So meaning, he speaks your language, he dresses like you, eats like you, walks like you. But most importantly, the precursor to the next point, he's felt all the pain that you have felt and will ever feel. And that's what makes him most relatable. So when someone says, my parents died, when someone says, my child died, when someone says, I got divorced, when someone says, I was betrayed, he doesn't have to say that I've been there and done that. But he's able to recognize the pain that you're feeling because he's experienced it already. And he knows how to get out of it because he already found his way out of it through Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And number two, this concept of deep emotional empathy, where you genuinely feel other people's pain. So part of the Ummah hurts, the whole Ummah hurts. What are we meant to get out of that? What we're meant to get out of that is when people are pain, special concessions need to be made, more benefit of the doubt needs to be given, and people need to be more caring in terms of helping them out of that. Now you've helped someone out of their problem, they're actually ready to make drastic positive changes in their lives, you have to want what is best for them. Now, best for them, it starts off with building their relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and building their success in the hereafter, but that is inclusive of their success in the dunya. So as someone's becoming a parent, you help them become the best parent. As someone's becoming a businessman, you help them become the best businessman that they can. And the Prophet wasallam saw an unlimited amount of potential in people that he genuinely believed in. So he helped him achieve the highest levels of whatever they were becoming, but not at the compromise of their deen. And that's what we need to focus on as well. And then last but not least, as is inevitable in relationships, people will make mistakes, people will have errors, 
you need to be forgiving and compassionate towards them. And you have to overlook their faults. And only through this step-by-step process do you win people's allegiance. And that is how you develop movements that drastically change the world in 23 years. Yeah. It is a, it is a difficult thing to really overlook people's faults because you never think of even people overlooking yours. You're too busy thinking about other people and stuff like that. So, but uh, that's where the incentive r- lies, right? You, you know, that pardon and forgive others. Do you not love that Allah should pardon and forgive you, mm. right? And I think this is like a beautiful equation. The more we pardon and forgive others, the more Allah subhanahu wa taala pardon and forgives us. But the hidden gem in this is that as you pardon and forgive others, Allah subhanahu wa taala inspires others to pardon and forgive you. But you have to take that first step of pardoning and forgiving and you get a reward twofold, one from Allah and one from the people. How about for, because we listen to your lectures and we'll listen listen to the seerah of Muhammad when you see this emotional intelligence that he has, because some people don't have this experience like Muhammad of losing a child, losing a spouse, you know, trauma, being betrayed. Sometimes people grow up, alhamdulillah, Allah protected them from these trials because maybe they would have reacted in a certain way. How does someone um, start on this self-awareness journey? What's the steps they can kind of take? That's like, okay, now I'm going to kind of bec- try to become more self-aware, become more emotional intelligence, bec- have that emotional empathy at a high level where sometimes someone goes, oh, my cat died. And, you, and you've never had pets before. You're like, oh man, suck it up. It's just a cat. You know, it's like, and it's like, subhanAllah, like, that's traumatic for a lot of families. 100%. You know, something as simple as that. And I've seen it with people where they talk about it for months with their animal, but it's because they've never had that connection to mm. a pet or to an animal. Um, so how's something, you know, for the everyday person, what, what's the steps they can take? So you know, that's really fascinating. Like, let's just go on a quick tangent. You have Anas ibn Malik's younger brother, Abu Omer, three, four years old. His bird died. Yet the Prophet ﷺ makes time to go and visit him and ask him, tell me about your bird, right? <laughs> so someone's cat dying is a much bigger <laughs> catastrophe, let alone a three, four-year-old whose bird died, right? <laughs> yeah, it shows us what prophetic character was like, that you have to care about everyone, not just the people that can financially benefit you or the leaders of your community, even the three, four-year-old toddler that you know could one day end up becoming the leaders of the ummah. Like you have to genuinely care about everyone. So all that's to say that if we take this framework that, that I was mentioning, it's recognizing that everyone is coming in with a level of pain. What does that pain look like? For some people, it could be the trauma and the losses that we've experienced. But for other people, it's like they haven't experienced it at all. So their pain is the desire of wanting to feel pain. Like it's sort of like these, you know, bratty rich kids that, you know, <laughs> inflict pain upon themselves to say that, yeah, you know, uh, I, something happened to me. Like, I, I can't remember the story we were talking about, but one of the kids in the masjid got shot in the leg. Whoa. And he's like, how do you feel? And he's like, alhamdulillah, I feel great. I can talk about, you know, how I got shot in the leg. Like, yeah, street cred, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, th- like, those are like first world problems. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so that's like another level of pain. Right, that, that people are experiencing of wanting to be a part of something, mm-hmm. wanting to feel included, wanting to you know, not have the, the luxuries of life because the grass is always greener on the other side. So all that to say, recognizing that everyone's coming from a place of, play, uh, a place of pain and it's not always obvious. 
So that means giving the people the benefit of the doubt. That means interpreting people's statements and actions in the best possible way. That means having deep conversations with people, trying to figure out what their goals and ambitions are in life, trying to figure out, you know, what is it that they're falling short in that they need help in, right? Just trying to develop these characteristics. So this will start off with, you know, recognizing that we have knowledge gaps in our knowledge. Not everyone will know everything, and that's fine. As long as you're willing to learn, that will take you a long way. Number two, when you communicate and speak to people, monitor yourself. Make sure it is with compassion. Make sure it is with mercy. Make sure it is clear. And make sure that whatever you're saying comes from a genuine place, right? Don't be fake, right? With this whole concept of fake it till you make it, we need to get rid of that culture. We need to be genuine, authentic people, even if it is flawed, even if it is filled with mistakes, right? Mm. Um, and then the, the, the third and, and last thing is, you know, this whole concept of treating others the way you want to be treated, I think goes a very long way. But again, it has to be a very conscious process of how are people perceiving my actions? Like the facial expressions that I'm expressing right now, how are people reading those? The body language that I'm portraying, you know, how is that coming across? And it's okay that you don't always have to be happy. You don't always have to be at a high level of energy, but also understand that when you go into a group of people, you're expressing a lot about yourself before you even speak. Mm. And if you're like sheltered and withdrawn and stressed out, those are the vibes that you're putting out and that's what people are going to pick up on. So pay a lot of attention to your facial expressions and your body language as well before you even speak because that will make people a lot more comfortable with you. And that is why you find that the Prophet ﷺ was always smiling. Like try smiling to someone in their face. It's inevitable that they'll end up smiling, right? <laughs> you true. just keep looking at them until they start smiling. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's what it's all about, right? How do you dishield someone? How do you disarm someone? Something as simple as a, a smile will, will go a long way. Yeah. <coughs> I think something where we can all implement, you know, I think self-awareness, like even in the self-development sphere, mm. that's something they really push. But from an Islamic perspective, it's there and all the examples you can probably think of, you can find in the seerah. You know, so I think it's a good thing for maybe us to even start uh, learning more from the seerah. You know, um, I wanted to ask, because I know you have to leave in a couple of minutes to get to the uh, mosque. Is there uh, maybe book recommendations? I know it's a hard question to ask, but we'll just say because Ramadan is about a month away, you know, people are going to start building up that Quran habit. But mm. maybe some Islamic books or even self-development books that maybe come to mind that you know are good recommendations. That is a tough question to answer. I know off the top of my head, I I don't think I have uh, an answer to that. But again, I would definitely recommend Sheikh Michael Smith's book with the heart in mind. I think that is a game changer. Like a good quality book like that has not been written in a long time. Uh, that's number one. Number two, Jamal Zarbozo's explanation of Imam Nawawi's forty hadith. It's like a masterpiece and a gem of a work. And regardless of your level of knowledge, you can always find some sort of tangible benefit uh, in that book. And then for, for number three, I think what's something that directly impacted me as I was growing up was this book called uh, The Prayer, Its Effect on Increasing Iman and Purifying the Soul by Sheikh uh, Hussein al-Awaisha. It's translated into English and it really just focuses on the spiritual dimensions of salah. Like when you're going into ruku, what is the significance of it? What is the significance of saying subhanahu rabbi al-azim? When you're going down into sajda, why is that the position that you're closest to your Lord, right? Like, what, what is the significance of saying subhanahu rabbi al-a'la and all of these things? So I think 
anything that will help you develop a deeper understanding of the actions that you do and an appreciation for those actions are things that we should regularly uh, strive for. As human beings, we need to logically be able to process our actions and understand why we actually do them. Uh, and then understanding the reward of the action cements it. But if we're constantly just focusing on what is the reward of this, a time eventually comes where you're no longer motivated by the reward because you don't even understand the action, right? So this two-tiered approach of understanding the action and then understanding the reward will take your ibadah uh, a lot further than just understanding what the reward of the action is. Is that, that, a, is that a bad thing to think about? Like, oh, if I pray the 12 rakat sunnah every day, I'll get X. Is that... No, is not at all. Still be motivated? I, I think let's be real. Not everyone will be able to afford a house in this life. Mm. That's just the reality of it. Yet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made having a house in Jannah so easy. Pray your 10 to 12 sunnahs uh, per day. The individual that you know gives up lying while joking has a house in the lowest levels of Jannah. And the individual that controls their anger while they're able to act upon it gets a house in the middle level of Jannah. The person that strives to strive uh, perfect their character gets a house in the highest levels of Jannah. Other hadith that whoever recites الاخلاص, 10 times in a day will have a house in Jannah. Like, you have an infinite amount of time. Don't you want more than one crib? Like, clearly, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm not sure if the MTV Cribs is a, is a thing over here. But it I'm like, be, yeah. it used to be, right? Yeah. Like, you don't want to have just one house in Jannah. And look, having one house in this dunya is not a reality. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has presented the opportunity for multiple homes in the akhirah. And that's if that's what motivates us, that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told us about it, right? Mm. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be successful um, in this life and the next. But then using those motivators, like we do in this life, you know, if it's wanting to get healthy, if it's wanting to get a certain job, you know, you we push ourselves to uh, get inspired. The exactly. same thing for the next life. 100%. 100%. Mm. Was there any closing remarks you guys wanted to make? Just quickly. Bismillah. Now, subhanAllah, you freshly graduated uni. Um, you had a goal, a vision to make an impact um, amongst the um, the youth and the Muslims around the world. Um, looking back now, all the successes, all the travels you've done, what are three um, quick, these are quick shot questions. Um, what's the three best advice you'd give or like? Um, I got you. <laughs> Let me try to answer it with what I understand, okay? <laughs> so I was actually having this discussion on the way here, so I'll try to make this as quick as possible. Number one. What would you change? Yeah. What would I change? Yeah. That's a good one. Okay. okay. So we'll get to that. Okay. Let me answer what I understood first. Number one is that you have to live your life and not someone else's. Okay. A lot of times our parents want this. Our friends want this. Society is telling us to do this. But at the end of the day, you have to do what is best for your dunya and akhirah. You need to figure that out. Number two, not everyone is going to be able to figure out specifically what it is that they're going to do to serve the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it's okay to be the jack of all trades. And then last but not least, you have to have balance in your life. Balance in your life is not just deen and dunya, but it's more specific. Your finances need to be in check. Your salah needs to be in check. Your family needs to be in check. Your health needs to be in check. Your mental health needs to be in check. Your social life needs to be in check. All of these things need to be in balance. So I think looking back, if I was to give advice to a new university student, those are the three things that I would highly emphasize. Now, if I was to look back and change something i don't like that sort of mindset because it's like you're living a life of regret and life is too short to live a life of regret but it's like what can i do now to change the things that i didn't change in the past right so i think focusing more on physical health for me it's like constantly on the go constantly you know busy with something and you know while you're trying to build success in this 
you're neglecting this. And for me, that was my physical health. So I would encourage people that please pay attention to your physical health and your mental health because that is how you will create a sustainable model for whatever you're doing. Number two, increase yourself in financial literacy from an Islamic perspective. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not want you to be poor. He wants you to be a God-conscious believer that has wealth, right? That's what you want to focus on. Um, and then the, the last piece in terms of something that I would change, probably just appreciate my parents more, man. Like my dad passed away, rahimahullah, in 2019. My mom currently is, uh, she's not really old in age, but she's struggling with a lot of health problems. And I wish I could have spent more time learning from her experiences, what her life was like, um, the struggles that she went through. Um, I, I wish I spent more time doing that when you know she was healthier and uh, communication was easier for her. So yeah, I appreciate your parents. Asia. I mean, all of us, all of us. I mean, I, I'm just making a note on that. I recently moved in with my grandma. Okay, and it's one of those things where, like, the other day I just bring up a topic and then she'll tell a story. She goes, you've heard this story, right? I said, never heard of it. And then I'm just <laughs> like, whoa, who is this lady? Yeah, she just tell me stories all the time about this happening. Like we have um, in Australia, the, it's Asia. Yeah. And we have like, a, it's Australia and the security service and stuff yeah. like that. They, the one time there was an incident like in 2004, they came banging on her door like 5 a.m., searched the house, they had a warrant. It's like wow. all this story. And I'm like, what is going on? And it's just some... Just these crazy stories she's telling me because she's from South, from South Africa. Yeah. Telling me stories about the apartheid and what she went through. And I'm like, Allah Akbar. This is a, Allah Akbar. yeah. It's very, you gotta, we gotta uh, appreciate and make the most of our parents and grandparents. 100%. And they're alive. 100%. Alhamdulillah. Jazakallah khairan ustaz. I know you have a busy schedule. You Thank have you another. So much. Allah May Allah reward you. For everyone that did listen, um, you know where to find Sheikh Navid. Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, YouTube, Twitter. I, 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 and Twitter. I have a TikTok sure account not. that I don't run, <laughs> but I'm on TikTok as well. Yeah. Uh, Mala, yeah. would you? Um, I mean, it was a pleasure having you on. Exactly. And I will, we'll post and and uh, encourage everyone to listen to your Please. series. Inshallah, I think over the month of Ramadan, even listen to Imam Nawawi series. It will be beautiful. It's a Iman high, and it's you can go deep in knowledge. So it's a beautiful thing to do. Inshallah. Yeah. Allah so there's the emotional intelligence, and the most recent one is the fiqh of social media. So that's like seven hours long, but. Yeah, whatever that, people. That's a week, an hour a day. An hour a day. <laughs> yeah, to make it happen. Yeah. Shukran. Hope you guys enjoy. Remember to like, comment, and subscribe.